1450 KMMS. Good morning. I'm Mark Allen. Glad to have you along. And uh, Carl Graham with Montana Policy Institute is in here, as always, on uh, Mondays. How are you, Carl? Good morning. Doing good. Glad to have you here, buddy. We've got a special guest today. Going to be with us for a little while. We do. Let's get her rolling. People man. get tired of talking or listening to me yak all the time, so <laughs> no. maybe I'd bring in somebody else who uh, who probably knows more than well, certainly knows more than I do about this topic, and uh, can give us kind of a national perspective and a local perspective, and uh, just pick a little brain, get the pros from Dover here from the Heritage Foundation. Okay, we've got uh, Ed Hasselmeyer. Ed, if I mispronounced that, I apologize. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So what do you think? Uh, we're, we're looking at Medicaid expansion, expansion in Montana right now. Our governor has come out in favor of it. Our, he's a newly elected Democrat. And, and uh, a bill has been introduced just last week. I think it's HB 560 uh, that would expand Medicaid according to the Obamacare uh, guidelines, as well as a few other things, too. And we're, we're gearing up for a big debate. Is, that, uh, is, is Montana unique in that situation, or are we seeing this happening around the country? No, we're seeing this around the country, and in fact, I was just uh, testifying uh, last week in Columbus, Ohio, to their legislature on this. Uh, and before that, I was in Columbia, South Carolina, and I'm, I'm sure I'll probably wind up in a few other state capitals before it's all said and done. Um, the, the thing that everyone has, well, there are a couple things I'd, I'd, I'd point out that everyone needs to understand about this. First of all, while it's going on in a lot of states, uh, each state is in many respects unique. Uh, they have their own set of circumstances. Uh, uh, the populations obviously are different among states, and also where their Medicaid program is today is different among states. So the the issues are slightly different in in, in various in the various states. That said, there are some certainly some commonalities among the states. The first thing that I think we need to focus on here is who is this population that would get coverage? And if you go back and you look at Medicaid from its beginning in 1965, it was a program designed to help the vulnerable poor. By that I mean poor children who couldn't take care of themselves, uh, the disabled who couldn't take care of themselves, uh, the poor elderly. Uh, and then over time, we also included some others. So, for example, people who, uh, because of they didn't have coverage or their coverage wasn't adequate and they wound up with some terrible illness and, and you know, had to spend their resources, those people, you know, they, they, they so-called spend-down population. We also, in most states, have covered uh, the parents of poor children, even if those parents are otherwise able-bodied and, and indeed even working, recognizing that they have to devote their li limited resources to child-rearing. So those are the populations we've traditionally covered in Medicaid, and the program has been designed for those populations as very low co-pays, a, a very broad benefit package, etc. This expansion population is not those people, with one exception. And that exception is it may be some of the parents uh, in states such as Montana that don't cover parents all the way up to, say, 100% of poverty. But other than those people, this population is a population that previously uh, the federal government didn't allow states to cover because they were not vulnerable, needy. And that is people who are low-income, but are able-bodied adults without dependent children. Now, the legislation at the federal level, PAC, Obamacare, whatever you want to call it, is trying to, first they tried to force, 
and now the Supreme Court said it has to be voluntary, so now they're trying to persuade states to cover that population in Medicaid. But these are predominantly, uh, and by predominantly, I mean, depending on your state, anywhere from 70 to 95 percent or more, able-bodied adults without dependent children. So if they have low incomes, it's not a health issue. It's not that their income has to go to support somebody else. The question is, why do they have low incomes? And is Medicaid the best solution? Well, when you look at that population, you can subdivide it further. The younger ones, people say in their 20s, low income is a product of a lot of things other than health care. It may be that they're still in school uh, or even part-time. It may be that they're in an area that's economically depressed with few job opportunities. It may be that they have poor skills, poor education, dropped out of high school, uh, or are just not motivated to go out and work. Whatever it is, it's principally about their employment, not their health care. For a subset, a smaller subset of the population, particularly those who are somewhat older uh, and and uh, still at a very low level of income, a lot of times there is an issue going on there, and it's one that Medicaid doesn't do a very good job of treating, and that would be mental health and substance abuse. Uh, you know, the, the thing to keep in mind here is... The new exchanges with their new subsidies, are if a state doesn't expand Medicaid, come in at 100% of poverty. In other words, the poverty line. If you have a minimum wage job at the federal minimum wage of $7.25, you are at 130% of the poverty level if you work full-time. So a lot of this might just be solved if you got more work. And that's why for this population, unlike for children or the disabled, if you're going to provide them assistance, you would want a strong work requirement. And we're seeing that here in Montana. The number of uh, childless adults would be about 75%. So we fall into that range that you're talking about there. And that's one of the arguments that we're making against it falls along those lines, too. And basically what you're taking and taking is a uh, you're trapping a young, healthy, able and mostly childless population into a system that's failing. And you're reducing their incentives to work and succeed, which I agree is, is really what the problem is, is it's not that they're spending too much on health insurance. It's that they're not making enough money because of the economic opportunities out there. And and we think that the Medicaid expansion is actually going to crowd out their opportunities to, to earn a living, to work and, and succeed and, and earn that success. Well, and that's another point, because if you, you, you know, there's a couple other derivative points that can be made here. One is that uh, to the extent that this population, the, the subset that is the younger, you know, in their 20s and, and, and relatively healthy, they go without insurance. How when they do need medical care, what do they do? Well, they show up at the hospital emergency room, uh, figuring they'll get treated and, 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 and taken care of. Well, if you are going to provide them assistance for this group, you definitely want something that looks like private insurance that discourages them from using the hospital ER inappropriately. Uh, again, it's hard to do that in, in Medicaid. Uh, so when you look at addressing the needs of that population and also the somewhat older ones who maybe have a serious substance abuse problem, the state and federal dollars are already being spent, but they're being spent elsewhere. Uh, 
So the question is, I mean, we, we had this issue in, in Ohio, and I haven't looked at the numbers in Montana. Of course, Montana is a, a much smaller state. But, you know, one of the things that the governor in Ohio was saying was, well, you know, there are these people sleeping under bridges, and, and, you know, and they would be covered and whatnot. And you look at that, and I looked up the data, in, in Ohio, that state is getting $115 million in federal money for mental health and substance abuse already, $66 million of which is a block grant, meaning the state can pretty much spend it however it wants if it's within the substance abuse arena. So the question you have to ask is, given the resources already in the system, why are these people still not being properly cared for? And two, is putting them into Medicaid going to be proper care? And on the second point, I would say no, because what's going to happen? Well, the same thing that happens today. When something happens to them, they show up in the hospital ER. The only difference is going to be that now the hospital gets paid by Medicaid, uh, but then they're going to be turned back out on the street with no meaningful help. So, you know, that may be good for the hospitals, and that, frankly, is the dirty little secret here in these states. It's If you notice who's lobbying for it, it's all the hospital associations. It may be good for the hospitals, but it's not necessarily the best solution for the patients. And that's, uh, yeah, we, that's what's happening here. The uh, Montana Hospital Association is the biggest uh, lobbyist for this. In fact, you can't swing a dead cat in Helena right now without hitting a lobbyist uh, working on expansion of Medicaid uh, through through them uh, that's employed by them or through their affiliates. And uh, and it's it's really crony capitalism at its worst. And and what's bad about it is is that the apparently the hospitals would rather see more Montanans receive poorer health care than find a way to make up the difference in the federal payments they're going to lose the disproportionate uh, cost shares and that sort of thing. They're they're taking the worst possible way for the people they're trying to serve of, of solving that problem, which is a real problem. Yeah, and Carl, if I could add a couple other points on that, uh, following up, you know, because as with all of these other things, they have knock-on and, and, and you know, uh, effects elsewhere. One of the ironies of this is that the federal government in this legislation has scheduled to cut payments for disproportionate share. These are funds, extra funds that go to hospitals in Medicare and Medicaid, not for treating a specific person, but just because, oh, you've got a lot of people on Medicare and Medicaid, you're not you know, getting paid as well. We'll just give you a lump sum extra. Uh, so it's, it's really very little accountability. Those funds are on the federal law are scheduled to be cut by certain amounts in the next few years, and that's what's got the hospitals all worried. But here's the irony of this. If uh, when the, the federal government's supposed to then redistribute the remaining money that's left, and they're supposed to give uh, less money to the states that expanded coverage more. So in other words, if your state expands Medicaid and puts more people on Medicaid than of the remaining money in this program the hospitals are worried about, the hospitals in your state will get less of it. <laughs> so that's kind of uh, backwards. The other big, big thing here is, and you mentioned this, Carl, was, with, is the work disincentives. It's not just that a program to help these people should have a work requirement. It's that if you extend Medicaid, you've now made it easier for employers to reduce hours and put these people on part-time and get someone else to pay for it. And interestingly enough, you've actually, between the Medicaid expansion and the exchanges, uh, you know, I look at this and I say, why would any college or university continue a student plan when all those students, including the graduate students, can go on to Medicaid? Okay. 
Well, and let's talk about the impacts of that. I think um, if you look at, and I know Heritage has done some great work, including some of the that you've done, uh, on the comparisons between people who are on Medicaid and people who are privately insured or even the uninsured and what their access to quality health care is and what their health outcomes are. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we do see poor, we do see poor quality uh, outcomes. In fact, uh, a colleague of mine did a paper uh, recently. It's a literature survey looking at all of this, of uh, the different studies that have been published in journals, uh, looking at the outcomes and for populations in Medicaid versus private insurance. And again, the problem you have with any of these uh, public programs, and, and you certainly see this abroad in Canada or, or, or uh, Britain, is that the people with the real expenses are the sick people, and if you want to save money in your budget, you spend less on them. And so, paradoxically, a system that we have, a market-based system, actually does a better job, I guess paradoxically for some people's thinking, does a better job of directing resources to people who are sick and need it. Now, there is an argument that sometimes it also encourages over-treatment. Fair enough, and that's why as conservatives we want to make it a more consumer-run system unless, you know, people picking their own insurance and having more incentives to interact directly. But be that as it may, it's clear when you look at Medicaid and some of these other uh, systems uh, abroad that they divert that, it, that rather than focus the resources on the people with the greatest need, they wind up focusing the resources on the greatest number. And and actually, that's why you see you know sick people waiting for care in Canada or, or Britain. And you, we don't want to go further down that road. Yeah, and we'll, uh, in the second half hour here, Ed, let's talk about um, some of the ideas that are out there to reform the system and actually make it more responsive to the population that it's supposed to serve. Because we've made a decision as a society, and I think rightly so, that we're not going to step over dead bodies in the name of fiscal uh, responsibility or in the name of fiscal reform or anything like that. We're going to take care of those who uh, who need to be taken care of. But there are a lot of good ideas, and again, Heritage is one of the ones that's leading the way in ways to reform the Medicaid system so that it can do that better. Let, let me throw a couple of numbers out there that are just Montana specific to provide a little bit of context. Um, uh, if in Montana expansion, uh, the, the estimates are about se- sixty to seventy thousand Montanans would be newly eligible for Medicaid. Uh, about fifty-six thousand of those people would be expected to enroll because not everybody will sign up. And of those, about forty thousand are either uninsured or currently ineligible for Medicaid. About seventy-five percent would be young childless, healthy adults. Uh, A lot of college kids, a lot of people like that. And again, we talked about the incentives that that provides um, or to to not earn their own success and and, and actually traps them into a bad policy. Can one of the areas that's of controversy or that's come up a lot is other states have decided to, and other governors, including conservative Republican governors, have decided to expand Medicaid. Could you talk about some of their rationale and maybe some of the incentives that are not available to Montana that would be available to them that might impact their decision and make it less relevant to our decision? Well, uh, the first thing that I would 
point out is is the headlines are all about what governors say, but what governors say and what the state in the end does are two different things. Uh, that's why I was invited out uh, to be one of a number of people testifying in Ohio the other day, because while the governor of Ohio says he wants to do this and has indeed even built it into his budget, the legislature is very reluctant to do it. And so they that that could go either way in Ohio. Uh, Florida is another one where I think it's uh, based on a couple of votes we've seen in subcommittees and some of the things that the Speaker of the House in Florida have said. I think it's even less likely that Florida will actually do it in spite of Governor Scott saying he wants to do it. So, so there are you know there are a number of realities beyond just what a governor says. A governor can say lots of things. So the question uh, in my mind is, first of all, is it in the governor's budget? Uh, and then secondly, does the legislature go along with it? Uh, and then finally, does it actually sign on the dotted line with the federal government? So it's very much up in the air in a lot of these states. Uh, the other thing to mention is that each of these states is in a somewhat different situation with respect to the structure of its Medicaid program and with respect to uh, its hospital system and disproportionate share payments and things like that. So that's where you see the differences, uh, and sometimes it's demographic. So, for example, uh, the issue in a Texas uh, with a heavy uh, uh, illegal immigrant population is, regardless of whether you expanded Medicaid or not, you're going to wind up with those people still on the outside of the system. And that's going to have a disproportionate impact on the discussion in a Texas than it would uh, in a Montana. And I think we're seeing some potential carve-outs, too. Some of these states are larger, uh, and they have more folks, uh, or they have more sway with the federal government, or the feds want to use them as examples, and so they're getting kind of special deals that, that a state like Montana just isn't going to get. Well, I, I'm not so sure about some of those special deals, either, because, uh, you know, one that's been discussed is Governor Beebe in, in Arkansas, uh, but frankly, the, everybody sitting around scratching their heads saying, well, we don't exactly see how this works. I mean, in theory, they would say, well, we'll expand Medicaid, but then we'll put all these people in the exchange, and it's, we're sitting here scratching our heads saying, well, what exactly have you achieved here? Uh, so it looks to be more cosmetic than anything else. I know that's attracted a bunch of attention, um, but, uh, you know, basically what's driving this in state after state, is, as I mentioned, and then you talked about as well, Carl, is the hospitals. Okay, let's. Uh, we've got to stop for the top of the hour here, and Ed, we'll come back after the news and a couple of commercial breaks, and uh, and we'll t- start talking about uh, what we. Fourteen fifty KMMS in Bozeman, thirteen forty KPRK in Livingston. Online KMMSAM.com, where you can find out all the information about what we're talking about right now. Carl Graham with the Montana Policy Institute is in here, and uh, Carl, I'll let you reintroduce your de- your uh, guest. All right, we've got uh, Ed uh, Heiselmeyer with the Heritage Foundation talking about Medicaid expansion in the state and around the country and uh we've we've kind of covered the major arguments i think and uh, and we're going to talk about uh what reform might look like if we really want to serve the population we're trying to serve in an efficient effective way uh but now let's uh let, let's kind of step back a little bit and go a little deeper into the numbers uh along with a couple other things we're going to want to hit on um but uh let's talk a little bit more about this population and the costs involved of who would be covered by the expansion and then we can touch again on uh, on why that's a good or a bad idea ed you sent us a whole bunch of stuff uh, a whole bunch of numbers here um 
why don't you summarize them so I don't have to read them? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, what what uh, I've been doing is looking at this population. This is data that uh, actually comes from some researchers at the Urban Institute, but you know our folks would come up with the same stuff because they're using census data is really what they're they're, they're using here. Uh, but uh, looking at the population in Montana, if you expanded coverage, uh, and who would be left without coverage if uh, if you expanded to Medicaid, and then who would be left in Medicaid if you didn't. So the the first point, and you mentioned this before the break, is that roughly they're looking at about 59,000 uh, individuals uh, who would gain coverage if it was expanded by the state in Medicaid. Now, if the state didn't do that, keep in mind that anybody with income above the poverty line would get coverage otherwise uh, either from an employer or on the new health insurance exchanges paid for by the federal government. Now, that's not great for the federal uh, taxpayers, but if it's an issue for state taxpayers, they're at least off the hook. Well, that would be 15 of that 59 million, or about a quarter of them. So what you're really left with is a population of about I'm sorry, not million, thousand, 59,000, 15,000 to 59,000. So what you're really left with is a population below the, the poverty line of 44,000 uh, adults. Uh, keep in mind, children are already covered. So we're not talking about the children. I mean, and we're not even talking about pregnant women. Uh, uh, you know, by law, children must be covered uh, up to, uh, well, actually the law will make it up to 138% of poverty. Uh, today, it's 100 or 133, uh, and Montana covers even pregnant women up to 150% of poverty. And also, Montana covers the disabled, the non-working disabled, up to 100% of poverty. So uh, we're not talking about them either. And the working disabled, Montana currently covers up to 250% of poverty. So really what you're talking about is able-bodied adults uh, who, in most cases, do not have dependents. So when you look at that, uh, 44,000 that are below the poverty line, 36,000 of them, or 82%, have no dependents, and only 8,000 are parents of children on Medicaid. Yeah, and so that gets us back into that argument that it's just, it's really bad welfare policy. It's uh, its providing disincentives to the very people that we want to have working and crowding out other other uh, possibilities for them to, to earn success and, and earn a living and get their families going. That's right. So if you look at that population and say, well, even so, what we want to do is we want to provide them with some assistance. Uh, as we were talking about before the, the, the break, I think there are several things that the state ought to look to do. Uh, or at least, let's put it this way, there are several parameters that the state should uh, consider on any state, and this is what I testified about in Ohio the other day. And the, and the first point is that, again, because of the nature of this population, any assistance that is provided to them should be conditioned on a strong work requirement. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it means that recipients should either be working, actively seeking work, or engaged in job preparation activities on a full-time basis. I mean, if you don't have dependents and you're not disabled, then you ought to be doing some combination of those three things on a full-time basis, 40 hours a week. Uh, you know, you could satisfy that. Maybe it's, maybe it's some vocational training plus a part-time job, whatever. But there ought to be that requirement there. 
for this population. Medicaid does not allow you to put that requirement on. So that's one of the first problems. Secondly, uh, if you're going to provide some kind of subsidized coverage for that population, the subsidy should be on an income-related scale. It should be a sliding scale. So you don't have this, you, you're on and you get everything, or you're off and you lose everything, which is the phenomenon we have in Medicaid today. Uh, then you don't want to have disincentives for work. So that's why you want a sliding scale. Then the the next point is that, again, most of that population is relatively younger and healthier, so you want to focus it the what you provide them not on the whole panoply of services, but on primary care. Uh, this is the main thing you want to do for that population because that's their main need and that's where you can actually make an intervention. Having somebody have regular appropriate primary care when they're younger does pay dividends down the road. Uh, and that is the principal need of that of the majority of that population. So that leads to my next point, which is like private insurance, uh, that primary care focus should also incentivize them to use that primary care and disincentivize them to uh, inappropriately use the hospital emergency department. I mean, it's one thing if you're you know hit by a car and you need to go to the emergency room. That's that everybody's you know understands that, and private insurance you know understands that as well. It's when people misuse it, and and that gets to the argument the hospitals are making, which is well we're stuck with all this uncompensated care. And then finally, for the subset that does have a chronic condition, and these are going to be people who are older, if somebody's above the age of, say, 30, and they're still below the federal poverty level, um, it's not just that they're not working enough, it's, there's probably something else going on there. In some cases, it's a chronic condition such as diabetes or hypertension. Again, Medicaid, where you simply show up at the hospital, uh, and get treated, you know, because actually Medicaid enrollees use the hospital ER more than uh, the uninsured do, uh, is not the best way to do it. These, again, these people need primary care and they need incentives. So, you know, can you put in a program of incentives for people, you know, working with the provider? Because doctors and hospitals can't do it for you. If you have a chronic condition, you know, you've got to take control. But sometimes you have to incentivize people with rewards. And there have been some programs that have experimented with that that, that could be looked at. So to control your diabetes, to control your hypertension. And then finally, there's the serious mental ill or substance abuse. And again, that is an issue. Uh, and again, that varies from state to state. Uh, you know, Actually, the the, you know, the drugs of choice vary from state to state uh, somewhat. There's some parts of the country where it's a meth epidemic, other parts where it's more cocaine or heroin. Uh, but the bottom line is, again, people who are in those situations have to... It's like Alcoholics Anonymous. You've got to have some tough love. They've got to accept that they've got to turn their life around. And you've got to build a program around doing that for people with substance abuse. Again, a Medicaid program that says just show up to the doctor and they'll do something and it's a low copay or no copay is not going to be the best solution there. And then finally, as I would pointed out, states already spend a fair amount in this uh, area and they get federal dollars. So what I my message to legislators in, in all of these states is 
start by realizing what these populations are, and then the next step is, let's go look at all these other things that the state's already spending money on, how much of it's state money, how much of it's federal money that can be repurposed. So is it you know job training, is it mental health, substance abuse, uh, et cetera? Those are the places to start looking and say, well, what can we pull together uh, to, to put a somewhat better solution into place for these people. But the, I guess the problem we have with that is, is that Obamacare doesn't provide us a smorgasbord. We can't just pick and choose what we want to do for repurposing or for reforming certain programs and, and uh, incentivizing and all that. This is a this is a take it or leave it, right? We've got well, either, in Medicaid, you're right. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, in effect, the federal government already provides a smorgasbord. I mean, there's something like 72 federal means-tested programs. So there's there's money all over the place. I mean this is this is you know when you when you look at the situation and frankly this touches on something else which is one of the things that the federal government has done a spectacular job of of messing up for the last 50 years is mental health. Uh and we have programs all over the place and untreated uh, people wandering the streets. So and it's really a tragedy. And what they did, I mean, look, in the old days they had mental institutions and, oh, yeah, they were, you know, there were some very bad situations in there. And they said, well, let's let's put them out in the community. Let's get them out of the mental institutions. We'll give these community mental health centers money. The system simply hasn't worked. But we are spending a lot of money. And by we, I mean the federal government and the state governments. So we've got the inmates running the asylum, and instead of reforming well, and, and, the asylum, we want to increase the number of inmates. Well, you you literally mention inmates. I, I mean, you, you know, let's literally talk about inmates. A lot of these people wind up in jail as the de facto mental institution, and yeah. that winds up on the state's books. Right. In fact, one of the arguments that was made—I don't know if it's been made in in Montana, but it was made in uh, Ohio by the Kasich administration, Governor Kasich's administration, was that one of the advantages of expanding Medicaid is we could shift the cost of prisoners' health care onto Medicaid, onto the federal government, more of it onto the federal government instead of state paying it. Well, why, you know, some of these people are in there because they have serious mental problems, commit a crime, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, something really horrendous like murder. Uh, it could be, uh, you know, property crimes, burglary, etc., et and they wind up in jail. And, and there is a precedent for giving states more power uh, to use the dollars in a way that's more efficient and effective, I think. Um, though even the federal part of the dollars, in the 90s, we, we reformed welfare, aid to families with dependent children uh, under President Clinton, was restructured to a series of block grants to the states, and we saw enormous efficiencies gained there, and the population, the needy population, was actually better served, right? Yeah, that, that's true. And, and again, uh, in this area, while... Uh, there's a lot of uh, legitimate criticism, I think, of what the federal government does do in this area of uh, mental health. There are even there some block grants. So actually, I'm just, while we're talking here, because I bookmarked the site, I came across this, uh, there's something called the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. People call it SAMHSA for short, S-A-M-H-S-A, and it's a subdivision of the federal HH. And I just went, they have a, on there where their money goes, 
and I just looked up Montana, and Montana in this fiscal year is getting almost $19 million in federal grants for substance abuse and mental health. $6.6 million is a substance abuse prevention and treatment block grant. And there's another one, almost $1.3 million so of uh, uh, that's a community mental health services block grant. So these are block grants in this substance abuse and mental health area. These are federal dollars. Uh, you put just those two together, and you've got already eight million in federal dollars that the state has a great deal of flexibility as to how they they spend it. So I guess what I'm hearing, don't let me put words in your mouth, but we should be thinking outside the Medicaid box instead that's exactly, of just... That's exactly right. So what I'm saying is, you know, you, you've got, uh, uh, you know, just right here, I've just identified for you all, you know, almost $19 million in federal dollars for mental health and substance abuse, of which at least $8 million would be very easy to repurpose because they're block grants. And so the question that you need to do is to step back and say, well, wait a second. Let's look at this population. What are we spending right now? Where is it going? Uh, And is this the best resource? Because, for example, if you're spending some of this money on people uh, to treat depression, say, not that depression isn't serious, but there is a difference between treating depression and treating schizophrenia. Um, if you're talking about people who are above the poverty line, who will now, if they're uninsured, they're either going to get coverage through private uh, uh, insurance or uh, under Obamacare, you know, they'll be subsidized in the exchange to get a full range of coverage. Then if that's going to be the situation come next January, if you've been spending some of this $18 million or $19 million on those people, well, then you don't need to do it anymore. And let's put those numbers in a little bit of context. If, if we did expansion in the state, the net cost to taxpayers, to Montana taxpayers at the state level, uh, would be about 50 million, well, between 50 and 100 million dollars. Now, that's after the federal money comes in, after you look at the jobs created by those federal dollars, after you look at the taxes that would come in, tax revenues that would come in as a result of that federal money. After all of that, it still ends up costing Montana taxpayers 50 million dollars to the to the state, but that doesn't even count the $6 billion that, that taxpayers are going to pay of the federal dollars. We have to remember that we're paying for that, too. Even the federal money isn't free. And so when you're, you've already identified, uh, what, uh, up to 10% or more of that that we could just repurpose and potentially uh, put to better use. Well, that's right. And then, again, if you look at the, uh, and again, this is going to vary from state to state, but one of the points I was making in Ohio the other last week is, well, if you're talking about the ones who are younger who aren't uh, don't have mental illness or, or, or substance abuse, because again, those are a very small percent of the population. What they found uh, in there was a couple states that have actually expanded Medicaid to this population in, in over the, uh, a number of years ago. Arizona and uh, Maine did, 
and they found a number of things. One, that uncompensated care for the hospitals didn't go down. It actually went up. Uh, that the expansion induced many more people to come on to the program and became very, very expensive. But one of the things they found was only about 4% of this population were what they called high users of services, meaning they went to the doctors and hospitals. But of those high users, 60-70% had a mental health substance abuse issue. So... That gives you a little perspective on what we're dealing with. The majority of these people are not going to be high users of medical care. Uh, They're going to be, as I said, below the income level, either because uh, they have poor skills, that's the one one reason, uh, or they're currently in school. So what about the uh, funds that states spend, again, uh, I haven't looked into this yet, but this is another one to look into, on job training and, uh, and economic development. States are spending their own money on that, and there are also federal money being spent on that. Uh, now, again, that's going to vary from state to state, but I'm sure in a state like Ohio with a, a heavy industrial base, there's probably a lot of money going to retraining uh, higher wage Workers, some of which you could focus on uh, getting basic skills to twenty-something-year-olds instead. Yeah, and that's a that's definitely an issue in Montana. Uh, we we have a, a well-educated workforce, but we have a very poorly paid workforce. Uh, we're one of the poorest states in the country when you look at per capita income and income per job, and and so there's a lot of room for improvement there. Um, so aside from it being just bad welfare policy that actually can harm the population it's supposed to help, uh, we're finding that it doesn't make fiscal sense either. Uh, another another factor that we have to consider in, in, in the risk of this is that the cost estimates for entitlement programs, I think, and I hope, I think you'll agree, have just been wildly underestimated historically. And in 1965, they said Medicare was going to cost about $9 billion annually by 1990, but the actual cost was $67 billion. Uh, and I think we can we can plan on seeing Medicaid uh, cost estimates balloon as well. Are you, have you guys done any work looking at that? Uh, actually, I think there is some in process right now, but as uh, when this passed, my colleague uh, Bob Moffat, uh, you know, did a sort of what to expect next piece, and he had a delightful title. He, he talked about just what you said and, and some of the other examples we've had in the past and referred to them as uh, upwardly mobile cost estimates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, and yeah that, that is what happens. I mean, the big concern that I have with this population, this is an area, you know, based on digging into this, I'm going to be doing a little more looking uh, into seeing if I can come up with some, some, some numbers, is it really, if you put a bunch of 20-somethings with, you know, uh, uh, no dependents, able-bodied, onto this program, how much are you incentivizing uh, universities and colleges to drop coverage and, and this is the big one, employers to do what we're already hearing about who are trying to avoid the Obamacare penalties to cut their hours? I mean, in other words, you think about the economics of this thing. If somebody, the poverty level for a single individual right now is $11,170. Remember, this person has no dependents to take care of, okay? They're just themselves, just as that individual themselves to take care of. If they worked a federal minimum wage job, which is $7.25 an hour, 40 hours a week, full-time, defined as 40 hours a week with 50 weeks a year, two weeks off, 
that puts them at 14,500, or 130% of the poverty level. Yeah, and in Montana, we'd find about 25% of the new enrollees under expansion would actually be there because they got kicked out of their private insurance plans, which, which gives much better access, right. much, much higher quality care. Uh, they would be forced into Medicaid and trapped there. Yeah, and so, you know, my concern is you actually give employers an incentive to cut the hours, and, uh, and, and these people would qualify for Medicaid. And the employer isn't going to be penalized for that. Uh, and the employee can have a higher standard of living working lower hours and, and keep more for cash uh, for, for other purposes. And, of course, that's a feature of Obamacare across the board where employers are already uh, dumping their folks into their planning to dump their folks into the exchanges and right. paying the penalty. Right. So what then happens is if, you're, if your cost estimates are based on uh, relatively static assumptions about your enrollment population, which they are. I mean, basically, when, when others have done this, and I, you know, the, the numbers I gave you, for example, they start by looking at the census data, and then they project it forward, uh, and, and I've seen these studies. They say, well, we assume that the cost of, care, of medical care grows about 4% a year, and we assume the population grows about 1% a year. Okay, that's fine, but what that doesn't capture is what if a lot of people suddenly shift into the program because it, you know, it's to their advantage to do it. It doesn't uh, uh, capture that substitution effect, and we've seen that substitution effect occur elsewhere. We saw that substitution effect occur with uh, this children's health insurance program, where you had a lot of substitution between employer coverage and individual coverage, uh, employer coverage and, and this new public coverage. Uh, we also saw it, by the way, in Obamacare with this provision that said that 26-year-olds could be covered on their parents' plan. Uh, the Obama administration was touting how many of these people, how much of an in uptake there was. Uh, in fact, uh, a fair amount of that were people who were bet who were going to get the coverage cheaper if they were on their employ their parents' plan if they were on their employers. I mean, I mean, I've got people like this around here. I mean, you get the twenty something, you know, twenty three year old research assistant here at the Heritage Foundation. He or she is just as eligible as any other full-time employee here for our health plan, and they pay the same contribution to it as any other employee, but obviously they have lower income, and, you know, if you could get on mom and dad's plan and it's essentially cost you nothing to do that, why not? So we actually saw that phenomenon with Obamacare with the under 26. All right, Ed, we've got to wrap it up here. I really appreciate the time and the information you've given us. Uh, folks, uh, if you want to learn more about this Medicaid expansion, our bottom line is it can wait. Once you go there, you're not coming back. So let's let's study this thing. Let's see what happens in other states. And uh, then we can make an informed decision a little bit later down the road. And for more information, you can get great stuff out of heritage.org. They've got some wonderful work on this. Uh, MontanaPolicy.org. We've got a lot of stuff posted. We're working on the just putting the final touches on a policy note that will give you all of these arguments, all of these numbers, and a whole lot of good references if you really want to bone up on it. And I encourage you to go there and get smart on it. And uh, and remember, there are costs as well as benefits. You're only going to hear the benefits from the people who benefit, primarily the hospital associations in this state. Uh, but you need, you need to look at the costs as well. And uh, as the grumpy old man, that's what we do is we show the costs of these things. And Ed, I really appreciate you coming on with us this morning. Well, thanks for having me.
All right, Carl, thank you for your time, buddy. Uh, anything else uh, you want to wrap up with before we uh, head out? Anything else? you Because you got a thing coming up in Helena tonight. Six o'clock, right? I'm going to be speaking. Yeah, it's uh, 